Lesson 1. Basic Hip. Welcome to the 301st episode of The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The show is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is the second time I'm doing this intro because the first time I think I sounded like a bit of an idiot. And so I'm not 100% sure I'm going to be able to fix that on the second time through, but uh, it'll at least be shorter. First of all, the 100 by 300 campaign was a smashing success. It was incredibly exciting, particularly the final like 12 hours, which were crazy with memberships coming in. I'll be honest with you. I wasn't really sure we were going to make it. And uh, <laughs> I think that probably probably came through, but we did. And I've got to tell you, that last bit of it, when memberships were just pouring in and you know lots of stuff was happening on Twitter and the emails were coming in, it was just great. It was a real throwback to the final day of you know, a lot of the pledge drives that I used to do in public radio, and those were always a thrill. The first you know, 30,000 hours of the pledge drive is some sort of insidious torture, and then the last day I always found very exciting, and that was the time when I really felt like I was the most useful during pledge drives to kind of ramp up the excitement. And you guys did that for me during this uh, 100 by 300 campaign. And so we made the goal. The show's continuing. Obviously, this is the 301st episode. So, of course, that means the show's going on. People have asked, can I still become a member? Of course. Uh, 100 is a great place to start, but we need more like, you know, a gazillion thousand members. So uh, to, to be one of those, you can just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. And thank you so much, everybody. I mean, seriously, I... I just can't thank you enough for uh, the support and for the incredible email messages that people sent me. I just uh, people said some amazing, amazing, amazing things about the show, and uh, I was I was very very moved by a lot of the messages that I received. So thank you very much. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet. I think I turned that sentence into. I don't know, about a syllable and a half. They are online at respectsextet.com, and this is their 10th year, so there's lots of cool stuff going on with them, a 10th anniversary show, and they've got a new record and all kinds of stuff. So please support them, buy their albums, go see them live, and find out how to do all those things at respectsextet.com. As you can see, this intro isn't any better than the first one. (laughs) It's just as scatterbrained. Part of the problem is I'm exhausted, and I waited until Sunday night after I'd been out to a poetry reading and a jazz show, two jazz shows, actually, and then came home Sunday night and decided, well, I'll just do the show now. So that's because I'm not good at planning. I've had this interview recorded now for several days and could have done it any time before now. You're welcome. Also, thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Speaking of Twitter, I have gotten rid of the Jazz Sesh account, which was an interesting idea that never really went anywhere. And I'm only using now my my regular, my original account, which is Jason D. Crane. D is in David, Jason D. Crane. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, please do that. Lots of people do. And uh, I live tweet from shows and post photos from shows and do other stuff some of which you probably won't like. So, I think that's it for the intro stuff, right? Yes, I believe so. And now I'll just tell you that Jamie Saft is my guest today, and I've seen him a bunch of times around New York in many different contexts, none of which even slightly resembled one another. And then I saw him at the Undead Jazz Fest a couple of times, but once with his new Zion trio, and I was just amazed. It just pushed all the right buttons with me, and uh, I, and I loved it. And then the new record came in the mail, and then we made the campaign goal, and then I needed some guests in a big hurry. And so uh, I got in touch with Jamie and asked if he could very quickly come on the show, and he said yes. And so here he comes right after a track from his new Zion Trio album.
My guest is Jamie Saft. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I've, I've seen you. Uh, I've only been living back in New York now since March, but I've seen you a bunch of times in a bunch of different contexts, and, and most recently with the new Zion Trio at uh, Undead Jazz Fest, which was just uh, maybe one of my top two things that I saw at that entire festival. Awesome. I just loved it. Uh, and now the new uh, record has come out. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, just tell folks kind of about this trio and why you decided to put it together? Absolutely. Uh, new Zion Trio is my pride and joy. This is, um, <laughs> you know, something I've been working on in my mind for many, many years. And um, I was sort of lucky to stumble into these two amazing musicians who make up New Zion Trio with me. Um, the first being Craig Santiago, my drummer, Brother Santi, uh, who uh, I just met like about a year ago upstate. I recently moved out of Brooklyn uh, upstate to the Catskills, and uh, there's a huge reggae scene up there. And so I met uh, Brother Santi about a year ago, and I immediately knew that I had found my musical soulmate. You know, Brother Santi is just, uh, he's playing roots, dub, reggae, in a way that I just have never heard, you know, another human do. I mean, the guy is really, he's just a stunning drummer and an amazing musician and a beautiful cat. And um, if I can just leap in on that, I remember when I was watching you guys at Undead, I turned to the person I was with and said, I don't know who this guy is playing drums, yeah. but I'm a disciple. I mean, it, yeah, it's he, like that. He was unbelievable. Yeah, I knew the day I met him. I didn't even need to hear him play <laughs> that the guy was for real. You know, he's living it. And uh, reggae music is one of those things that you need to live. And it's not something that you can just shine on. It's, uh, you know... It's a discipline. It deserves the greatest respect as any great discipline, jazz, blues, rock, uh, you know, deserves. And Santi Dredd lives it, man. He's, you know, he is 100% about the music and about, uh, you know, forward roots reggae music. And so, you know, meeting him personally, I knew that uh, everything was in place. And so we immediately planned uh, a musical meeting and as soon as i sat down in the studio with him it became very clear to me that this um sort of uh connection between improvised free jazz and the sort of um spiritual jazz of the 70s the alice coltrane and pharaoh sanders um lonnie liston smith those those artists were really important to me when i was coming up and getting into improvised music um I, I very at a very young age went um you know straight to the avant garde. I mean I came through Monk and Bill Evans and Miles and Coltrane, but I immediately gravitated towards the, you know, sort of spiritual free jazz of the seventies was really uh a, a great interest of mine. And so I had always conceived of this connection between the roots reggae music, um, that spiritual free jazz of the seventies and um, sort of, you know, in a piano trio context. And so I needed a bass player who could bridge all those musics together. Which is a tall order. Huge order. Um, and Larry Grenadier is totally that cat, just uh, a master of his instrument, another master of his, of his instrument. Uh, and Larry, you know, was very willing to indulge me on this particular <laughs> thing. Um, I don't think he had played a great deal of reggae music before, uh, but the way we structured the music, I think, you know, I come from the school of writing for your musicians. I don't just write music in the air and then give it to musicians and say, now, you know, now let's make something of it. Uh, I write for musicians. It's something actually I learned from John Zorn, who is the master of writing specifically for his musicians, who he chooses. Um, and so this music is very much from that. I wrote for Santi and Larry. And, uh, you know, it was a magical set of sessions, man. It just came together. You know, the first day we started recording, the very first take is the first thing on the CD. And it was totally magic. I knew in that moment that this was just something special. And, uh, you know, I put all my energy into making this record. So I'm so happy to see it sitting here and, you know... <laughs> It's uh it's one of those rare occasions 
when an improviser conceives of a record and sees it all the way through and can actually listen to your own record. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's very rare that I put on my own records. I, I've always tried to make records that I would want to listen to and that I would want to put on. Um, but that's different than actually doing that's it. That's right? different yeah. than actually doing it, absolutely. And, I, you know, this thing just kind of, it just happened. It, it was so, it, it, it felt right. And uh, it was realized effortless, effortlessly. It was really easy to accomplish. folks a little dub 101 to just kind of let them know about that that subgenre that it really informs this album absolutely um you know dub is a an extension of roots reggae music that came about um when the great engineers in jamaica guys like king tubby scientist um would do uh dub versions of reggae songs and so they would be these sort of wordless uh, instrumental versions of songs where they would dub out the vocals and add echo and delay and reverb and um, all sorts of effects and in a sense the engineer becomes the artist um, the engineer is suddenly mixing the you know the piece of music and making a totally new piece of music out of a pre-existing basically a rhythm track um, so this record, New Zion Trio, sort of taps into um, dub styles, but I tried to stay very subtle on the dub um, aspects of it. There is a, an extra cut that comes with the digital download of this record uh, that a great friend of mine, Christian Castaño, did that's uh, a dub version of one of these tracks where he arranges it differently and adds a bunch of echo and delay and reverb and... Um, changes the tune into something new um but the record itself uh is sort of it's informed by dub but i did i tried to stay um sort of more in the acoustic side of it sure and not get too deep in the electronics of it you know new zion trio uh, is fundamentally an acoustic project i do play you know some fender roads on it and we do use delay and echo but uh, on the record, it sort of stays in the background yeah. and lets the music be at the front. Yeah, I, I definitely saw that contrast between the live performance that I had seen and the record, where you can you can definitely see a varying degree of influence from the dub world. Absolutely. And one of the things about making a record like this in the studio is that um, we were so free to be incredibly quiet and subtle. And it's one of the things that it's very hard to achieve live. Um, Jazz gigs can approach it, but reggae gigs, it's very different. And electric gigs and electronic music, uh, it's just, it's a different beast altogether. Sure. So one of the great things about this record and doing it in the studio is the noise floor is so low. And we could go so deep into the sounds of the acoustic instruments. And that's a another one of the things about 
uh, Larry Grenadier and Santi Dredd is that they are they both have the most incredible sound on their instrument just stunning acoustic sound Um, Santi Dredd, um, you sit down at his drums and you play them and it, it's like magic, man. You just, they, they just, the sound leaps out of them. And then when he plays them, the tone is even <laughs> deeper. And Larry Grenadier just has this enormous bass sound, really amazing acoustic sound. And so we were really able to focus on sort of, um, the acoustic space that, uh, we created within this reggae thing, which was, I, I think, pretty unique. We're the same age, and just reading other interviews that you've done, it sounds like we grew up musically very similarly, listening to Stevie and Pink Floyd and prog rock, and uh, I listened to a lot of, actually, reggae and dub growing up. And, yeah. Um, and those, and also the things you mentioned earlier about the kind of uh, 70s, like, spacier side of the jazz world was also the first thing I got into just by accident. And so I... I, I so hear that when I hear this new Zion trio. And the other piece that I hear really comes out of your production work and kind of sound design work, where both in the new Zion trio and in the other places I've seen you, I hear such an attention to the way the music sounds, not just the, the harmonic and melodic and rhythmic content of the music, but actually the kind of oral environment soundscape yeah, of absolutely. it. Absolutely. Crucial. Um, you know, I've been tinkering with engineering and you know sonic manipulation since I was a young kid I was a four track kid and you know made my jams on my four track when I was young and um, I've never been one to write music on paper I, I don't connect with writing on staff paper it just it's not how I express myself and I, I always for a long time I felt that was really important and coming up in the New York downtown improviser world where there was a real strong focus on composition and improvisation together, for years I struggled with writing music on paper. And, you know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago I realized, you know what, this is not how I write music. I've always written music by playing it myself. And, uh, you know, I'm a multi-instrumentalist. I've play guitar, I play bass, I play some drums, um, I play like producer's drums, you know, <laughs> like functional <laughs> drums, um, and, you know, so when I wrote music, I would just sit down and I'd sort of play all the basic parts of things that I want, and if I had a melody, I would teach it to a horn player just by ear. Um, so, y you know, creating 
my own sort of unique sonic space has been crucial to my music since the very beginning. Um, I've had a studio. I had a studio here in Brooklyn for 10 plus years. Uh, now I have my studio set up upstate uh, in a much bigger and nicer <laughs> form um, out of the basement, you know, with some nice view. And uh, Although you recorded a lot of great albums at the, uh, at yeah, the other place. Too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, incredibly fortunate. We made amazing records down there, you know, for Zorn and Saudi, We made so many records and you know, I really got into the studio and buying gear to make my own records. Um, I knew very early on that I couldn't afford to go to big studios and spend tons of money making right. all these different kinds of projects that I had. And, um, you know, a lot of the music that I make is, is new and, you know, conceptual in a sense. And so, you know, it's sometimes hard to convince people to give you big budgets to go and do those things. So I started buying studio gear very young and... Before I had children, I spent all my money on gear <laughs> and, you know, was able to build up this really great studio. I was very fortunate to have made so many great records in Brooklyn. Um, but it was all in the service of making my own records and creating my own world of sound. And so absolutely, um, you know, high-end sonics are, are crucial to my trip, just so important. And that really goes for pretty much every record I've ever made um, as a leader and as an engineer. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate to learn about engineering from some really heavy engineers. And when I was young and I was on sessions as a young, you know, jazz sideman, you know, everybody would go off to lunch and I would go into the control room and start asking the engineer, guys like Joe Furla and James Farber and Ron St. Germain and um, just heavy cats, what they were doing and how they were making it sound so ridiculously good. And, you know, the great thing about engineers of that level is that uh, they have really no secrets. And so they were perfectly willing to share with me, um, especially a guy like Joe Furla is just such a heavyweight um, and so deep into uh, the sonic trip, as deep as the heaviest musicians are. Joe is that for engineering. And uh, I've always tried to surround myself with people who are as passionate about engineering as I was about making music. And I tried to learn from them. And, you know, so I picked up a lot of amazing things from guys like Furla uh, and applied it to, you know, making my record sound as beautiful and as sonically rich as I could. From what you said earlier, it sounds like that consciousness applies to the people that you get to make the music with you. I mean, one of the first things you said about both Larry and Santi was their sound. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, I have been so incredibly fortunate to work with musicians on just about the highest level. Even back in school, I was very spoiled. Uh, studied with Joe Maneri, who is one of the great sound conceptualists of, you know, of our time. Uh, came up with Kung Vu, trumpet player, you know, from Pat Metheny's band. Kung is just, you know, has the greatest trumpet sound in the world. Yeah, Unbelievable. And so I was spoiled. I listened to Kung's trumpet sound forever. So, you know, you get very spoiled. And then <laughs> I played with all the greatest drummers in the world. So spoiled. Joey Barron and... Ben Porowski and Jojo Mayer and Kenny Wallace and it's just it goes on and on and on um, and so I, I've just been very spoiled to play with really incredible musicians and uh, you know fortunate that sometimes they're down to play my music <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I'd like to fill in some blanks for people who might be being uh, introduced to you sure. in the course of this interview. Uh, can you talk about when you um, came, you said you were from Flushing. When you came back to New York in 93, can you talk about how you kind of integrated yourself Absolutely. into the scene? Um, so, you know, I studied at New England Conservatory in Boston. Joe Maneri was one of my, well, was my main teacher, I would say, and uh, hugely influential in, in shaping my music. Um, and then when I came back to New York, uh, you know, I very quickly met John Zorn. I actually met Zorn through Harvey Picar. Um, do you, you know but, Harvey's but work? People, yeah. I will. Harvey of the film American Splendor. <laughs> um, Harvey was this incredible writer and um, just an uh, in- incredible jazz writer and lover of jazz and champion of the avant-garde. And Harvey was... Uh, really a, a, a huge champion of Joe's work, Joe Maneri's work. And Harvey asked Joe, who, who's, who are the cats? Who should I check out? And so um, Joe told Harvey to check me out. And so uh, Harvey gave me a call one day and he said, yeah, Joe says you have this record. I had, I had made this record, a uh, quartet record with Kung Vu and Andrew D'Angelo and Jim Black. <laughs> and, um, you know, we were just kind of sitting on this record and trying to sell it. And Harvey said, yeah, Joe says you have this great record. Can you send it to me? And so I sent it off to Harvey. And he called up Zorn and said, you need to listen to this record. And at the same time, uh, I think Dave Douglas had also heard the record through Kung. And uh, Dave said to Zorn, you, you should probably check out this record. And so I got a call from Zorn one day. Hey, this is John Zorn. I hear you have this great record. Can you send it to me? So I ran down to FedEx, and I FedEx Zorn the record. And the next morning at, like, 11.30, my phone rings, and, hey, Saft, it's Zorn. Hey, man, thanks for the beautiful record. Check's in the mail. Thanks a lot. And he just bought it on the spot, and that was how I met Zorn. And, um, incredibly, he saved us and put our record out. And uh, that was, that's a record called Ragged Jack that's on Avant that is very out of print these days. Um, it's a crazy record, actually, <laughs> uh, worth seeking out. And uh, after that, you know, I started hanging around Zorn's world and the downtown scene and the knit. You know, we, we hung at the knit, um, the old knit. And, uh, and John started calling me to play sessions with him. And uh, I think the first, well, I did some, uh, some sort of score work with him first, some TV commercials, I think, was the very first thing I did with him. Um, and then I think the first record we did was Taboo in Exile, which is an amazing, crazy Zorn record with Lombardo and Ciro Batista and Rebo and Joey and yeah, all the cats are on album. that record. Um, and so I kind of came up, you know, in New York that way and just have been slugging it out on the downtown scene for many, many years. And that whole, uh, the whole radical Jewish culture path really resonated with you too, Absolutely. Right? Uh, you know, I was making Jewish music and was inspired by um, many of the same things that, that John was. Actually, Zorn and I were born blocks from each other in Flushing, Queens. And, uh, you know, back in the day, it was Jews. You know? <laughs> There's right. very few Jews there in Flushing anymore. All the good delis have closed. But, um, you know, I was very inspired, um, you know, by traditional klezmer music. But I think, like Zorn, I always felt that um, that what that traditional klezmer music wasn't my path. You know, like you said before, I came up on popular music on Black Sabbath and ZZ Top and Stevie Wonder and Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and you know ACDC. That was what I listened to. And so, even though you know Dave Terrace and Naftuli were you know inspiring to me, we were all sort of looking to um, create something that was really uh, that resonated with our experience as as Jews in in New York now, and so um, you know, of course, I gravitated very quickly to the radical Jewish culture thing that Zorn was doing, and uh, he asked me pretty early on to start making records for the Radical Jewish Culture series. My first record um, actually was a lot of those same guys. Uh, it's called Savlanut. And that is with Jim Black and Chris Speed and Jonathan Marin, amazing bass player from the Groove Collective. Um, and so that was sort of the first record I made for the Radical Jewish Culture series and made a lot of diff- very different records for it. I, with the Radical Jewish Culture series, I always felt 
um, that Zorn had charged the artists with really creating something unique and meaningful and different. And that, you know, he wasn't really interested in traditional klezmer music, and neither were we. And so um, I always tried to make, uh, you know, really... Um, special records for the, you know, for the Radical Jewish Culture series. My next record, Breadcrumb Sins, um, was no improvising. It was more of a sort of a DJ approach to uh, a record, a lot of samples. Um, and, I mean, I, I played pretty much all the instruments on that record myself. There's a couple really cool guests on there. Uh, Anthony of Anthony and the Johnsons sings this amazing track on there called Blood on the Door. Um, which you can YouTube if you like. Um, and my wife sings a, a really heavy sort of spiritual piece on there called Tchelet, uh, which is the blue threads and the talus. And um, Breadcrumb Sins was actually really about sort of my experience as a Jew in Brooklyn in the sort of mid to late 90s and sort of the clash of cultures and sort of all the different you know, religions and cultures that all sort of jam together here in Brooklyn. Um, you know, and then, uh, let's see, after that I made Music of Bob Dylan record for the Radical Jewish Culture Series, which is obviously what that is. <laughs> um, and then what have I been doing for the Radical Jewish Culture Series? I have uh, a new record coming on the Radical Jewish Culture this year called, uh, this summer, called Borscht Belt Studies. That's um, some solo piano, some duo with Ben Goldberg, clarinet from New Klezmer Trio. And there's one cut from New Zion Trio also on Fantastic. that record. Yeah. That's great. Um, before I ask the next question, I'll just say, for anyone who doesn't know uh, Anthony and the Johnsons, they should hit pause right now and go get some because totally absolutely amazing and uh for me i remember when uh when the movie uh, leonard cohen on your man came out yep it, it opened in an art theater i was living in rochester new york it opened just, just played five nights i went all five nights and every single night i was in tears at the end yeah of his performance i yeah. mean anthony's thing is is yes. so special it's and um actually i know anthony a anthony very careful yeah. anthony <laughs> with no h anthony uh I know Anthony through my wife. Uh, my wife and my wife used to sing with Anthony, and they were best friends in college. They went okay. to NYU together and um, studied voice together. And she used to sing at his shows at Mother and all these really heavy clubs. And um, you know, Anthony sang at my wedding. Wow! Anthony sang "Mysteries of Love" from Blue Velvet <laughs> as the first dance at my wedding. You know, talk about incredible moments. <laughs> and I also have Zorn. I have a picture of Zorn holding my father up on the chair, dancing the horror in his camouflage <laughs> pants. And, you know, it was, a, it was a heavy night, our wedding. I never get invited to those kind of weddings. I know, well, Yeah, I gotta, know, I gotta start making some You're ten words. years too late, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I guess so. Ten years too late. Let me ask you, as a, as a person who has a very definite musical vision, even though it's a broad one, was it challenging at all to work or is it still challenging at all to, to work inside the orbit of someone like John Zorn, who also has a very powerful musical vision? Um, that's a really complicated question. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, was it challenging? Yeah, certainly it was. Working with John is, is certainly challenging in all the best ways. Sure. Um, John surrounds himself with the best musicians in the world. And, um, sorry, man. Um, uh, John's also unique in that he never rehearses ever for anything. So the the rehearsal is really the sound check for the gig or in the studio as you're, you know, you go piece by piece. Um and so uh you know, John's musical vision is also incredibly broad. Um and I think that's one of the things that he uh focuses on when he chooses his musicians is you know, you're not just a piano player, you're, uh, you're you. And he chooses people for who they are and not just, oh, I need a piano player, let's find who's the best piano player. He chooses his personalities. And once he finds you, you know, no one's getting out alive. You know, you're, you're, you perform a really specific function. And um, one of the things about playing in his bands is, um, you sort of have to figure out sort of the 
you know, the key to the code. And once you figured out the key to the code, it's easy. It just goes. It's, it's, it's like, uh, effortless like that. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, you know, it's a high pressure gig and everything is conceived of right on the spot, right in front of your eyes. And that's sort of, you know, a lot of John's genius is that he takes a small seed of a piece of music and, um, he makes it into a masterpiece right in front of your eyes. And he's a great orchestrator and he's an incredible um, conceptualist of events, musical events. So when he puts together a band, um, you know, there's so many factors. It's not like, you know, a lot of musicians where it's just they write some music and then they sort of audition people and see who's kind of the best and then... You know, it doesn't go like that. It's trial by fire with John, and you get the call, and you go and do it, and either you can hang or you can't. Right. And it's very clear, and I've seen some really, I've seen heavyweights get sent home packing, you know, just incredible heavyweights who you couldn't believe it, you know, uh, just, I just got canned, you know, because they just couldn't perform the function that, you know, he had conceived of for them sure and not just for some musician so uh you know it's a very rarefied group and i feel incredibly honored and fortunate to have been a part of you know so many of those amazing records and incredible bands um and you know when you get on stage with joey baron and mark rebo and Ciro baptista and john zorn you can only bring your A game. There's no, there's nothing but A game. Right. You know, it's all A game. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I mean, in a sense, there is an aspect of it that you can coast through because you know it's all taken care of. You know, Joey Barron is not fucking up. Right. He's just not, you know. Um, And if he's fucking up, everybody's fucking up. You know, it's just, it's, you know, these are masters. And, uh, and John is a master, obviously, one of the greats. And so, um, it's a blast, but it's really high stakes. And, uh, you know, it takes a lot of trust and knowing that, uh, you know, part of the thing with John is, uh, he's, he's always trying to sort of pull the rug out from under you. And, um, it's in the service of something bigger. And so a lot of times you'll be, let's say, soloing on a, on a piece of music, and there'll be crazy things happening behind you, the band dropping out, and you're alone, and then one guy comes in, and people doing the total opposite of, of what's going on, but it's obviously informed by his game pieces and by aleatory music. And, uh, you know, he just, he can create something that pure improvising couldn't. Sure. You know, and so if you can sort of give it, give, give up your ego about it and just put yourself in service of whatever he's doing, you know, everything will be right. perfect. <laughs> and, um, it's actually a very similar thing to what's going on with New Zion Trio because, um, neither Santi Dredd nor Larry G had ever done anything like this. Now, Santi Dredd is a master of reggae music, but nobody's playing reggae beats at excruciatingly slow tempos with really complex cyclical structures that aren't based on four and bars of four and eight. And sometimes reggae in three, four, and six, eight, which just doesn't even exist. <laughs> and then asking a master like Larry Grenadier to play the same trance-like bass line for 10 minutes without ever varying it on the acoustic bass right. is a huge, enormous challenge. And it's a, um, it's a test of your will. And it's, it's like a feat of strength.
New Zion Trio, in a lot of ways, is about what you don't play and not what you do play. And so as we developed this music, we realized um, it, it was very similar to what I said about Zorn, that there's a key that unlocks each piece. And you have to find the key and sort of how it fits. And once you've found, you know, those, the, the specifics of it, it was really about what you didn't play and what you left out. And um, a lot of the trance thing, uh, you know, hinges on not breaking that trance. Right. And that's also the magic of reggae is that, you know, it, it has a certain flow to it. And I sort of tried to, like, meld together the flow of reggae music and the flow of the spiritual jazz of the 70s that we were talking about um, and, you know, put this sort of uh, freely conceived improvising flavor over the top. And so, you know, each tune was like a feat of strength for these guys to... Not break the trance, and it was also for me. You know, I tried to make a record that you could listen to over and over and over, and it, it never got oppressive. You know, it's one of my real problems with so much of the music that comes out of the improviser world on CD. Is obviously it's very very difficult to capture on a CD or a record album what is really music of a moment. And it's specific to that time and place. And the greatest jazz records, things like Live at the Vanguard Again, Coltrane, Live at the Village Vanguard, Bill Evans, <laughs> um, So What, you know, like, uh, you know, Kind of Blue, you know, the, uh, you know the, 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 the most important records captured that moment in a way that most records don't, especially from the improvised world. And so many records I put on uh, from, you know, modern improvisers are torture to listen to. I wouldn't, I can't make it through the first tune, no less a whole record. And so I never want to make records like that. And uh, even the most avant-garde and difficult and you know, records that I make that are, you know, that conjure the black arts and that deal in, you know, things that uh, are sometimes about uh, difficult, you know, ideas, those should also be fun to listen to and enjoyable to listen to and uh, rewarding to listen to. And, you know, so much of improvised music is um, about the process. But it's very difficult to capture a process on tape. So New Zion, I think, um, really uh, gets that. That there's, uh, it's just fun to listen to. It's pleasant to listen to. You never like hunch your shoulders up and say, "Oh, what was that?" You know, it just it goes and it can keep going, and it it should feel as if it never stops. You know, and that was the feeling that I was going for with New Zion, that it just starts and it never stops. Yeah, New Zion reminds me of uh, uh, one of the, the favorite things anyone ever said to me about riding a bicycle through the city, which is that you move uh, at the speed of sight. You move just fast enough so that you can see what's around you, or fast enough to get where you're going, slow enough to see where you are. Yeah. And New Zion feels that way to me because it... It feels like it's going at a speed that allows me... It's like a cutaway sometimes. Like, it allows me to see the gears. It allows me to see yeah. what's actually happening because it's happening for a while. And I can just totally. kind of sink into it. Totally. And go along with the things as they evolve. I mean, it's really... It's That's fantastic. That I love that. Um, is acoustic piano occupying a, kind of a larger part of, of what you're doing these days than it did? Kind of based on just things I've read from you before, it seems like maybe it's... Yeah. It's moved to the fore in a little bit. Yeah, it has, absolutely. For years, I really resisted um, playing a lot of acoustic piano. It just became less of a focus for me. And, uh, you know, I was playing all this sort of rock and metal and, um, you know, more electric music and playing a lot of guitar and sort of had a moment when I was younger before I went to, I went to, before I went to New England Conservatory where I was sort of faced with you know, am I going to focus really on the piano? I, I've, I've been playing piano since I was very young, maybe three years old or something. And uh, I started playing guitar maybe when I was seven or eight. And, you know, 
I was never quite as good at the guitar as I was at the piano. And sort of when I went to look at school and thinking about what I wanted to do with my future, I sort of focused on the piano. And for a long time, I really thought that was a mistake that I had sort of missed what I was really into, which is really electric music and rock music. And um, I sort of went in the direction of the avant-garde, and that took me more to synthesizers and electronics and allowed me a lot more freedom. And piano in avant-garde jazz is, is, is brutal. It's torture. You know, it's just, it's, you know, it's just a lot of bashing, and it just has nothing to do with my music. And so... Um, you know, after battling that for years, I just said, you know what, I don't, I don't really do this. And, um, you know, I, like we said before, I came up on electric music. I came up on metal and reggae and pop music and funk and James Brown and Stevie Wonder, you know, and there's no piano in those things, you know, or a very little bit of piano in James Brown maybe, but, um, you know, and so I sort of, uh, was doing a lot of electric music for a long time. And I have to say it was really Zorn who kept bringing me back to the piano. He kept hiring me to play acoustic piano on all his records. I mean, I played in a lot of, uh, a lot of his electric projects too. Obviously electric Masada was a big thing and I played Fender Rhodes and some organ in that. And, um, but he wanted to do a trio. He, he had been trying to get me to do an acoustic piano trio for years and the very first thing i ever did for him on one of his records was that first piece on taboo and exile which is this um very like paul blay influenced floating piano thing over this really cool um Ciro baptista groove with the um what do you call those drums uh i forget the little clay pot drums oh uh, um not ooh. Yeah, it's like uh, oud or yeah, something no, like that. That's not something that, like that. Yeah, but, uh, I can't. You know, remember I can't either. I'll remember in a sec. But uh, you know, it's and it's this acoustic piano, like very single line, Blay, Lenny Tristano floating in and out, and that was like a really important moment for him and for me. And he just loved that. He was obsessed with that. He thought it was the best thing ever. And so for years and years and years, he tried to get me to do different types of acoustic piano records for him. And first he was trying to get me to do a, um, great Jewish film music record. And we looked at a lot of really cool music and, um, similar to what we were talking about with the old klezmer music. Um, I, I always felt like really, um, interpreting older music sort of standard style had no meaning for me. And I was never interested in playing standards. That's, you know, music from like a, another time in another place. It has nothing to do with me. Um, and, you know, like Stella by Starlight, I, I couldn't care less about Stella by Starlight. Uh, you know, I wanted to listen to Slayer. So um, it was really not until... Um, John presented we, me with uh, music from the Masada Book 2 book, which he had specifically written for me. And suddenly I was presented with this music that actually was really relevant to me, that was written for me, that had meaning for m my world and my experience, and uh, the experience of being sort of a modern Jew in New York, dealing with the avant-garde and the sound of it and just the whole thing was really right. And so suddenly I was presented with this body of music that actually meant something. And so that was the first time that I said, okay, I can make an acoustic piano trio re record that I can feel good about. Um, that I, I didn't feel like I was taking from someone something that wasn't mine. Um, you know, and, um, that record really was super successful. Everybody loved that record and everybody just seems to enjoy listening to the piano. You know, so, um, you know, I can go with the flow like that. And there's just been always this kind of groundswell of interest in my acoustic piano playing. I, I was very fortunate to have an incredible piano teacher when I was a kid. Uh, it's a guy named Burton Hathaway, who is a uh, technical guru, um, really humble cat, lives in Fairfield, Connecticut, where I sort of grew up and went to high school around there. Um, and I was fortunate to study with him from a pretty young age, from when I was maybe eight or nine years old. And he taught me this incredible, um, really simple and, um, 
very logical way of playing the piano, which is based on sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, I want to say like a sort of Russian technique. comes from, you know, uh, people like Vladimir Horowitz or um, like Liszt was supposed to have used this type of piano playing uh, technique. And uh, it deals with very basic principles of physics, that when you're playing a, a piano, you're accelerating the mass of that key with a certain amount of force. And any extra force creates an equal and opposite force in the other direction, and that kills your sound, and it kills the line, and it, you know, it kills the whole thing. So it's about using gravity. Piano playing is not about strength. It's not about how hard you hit the key. It's how fast you accelerate the mass of the key. It's a very simple, basic principle of physics that I'll bet there are very few piano players in this world who could express to you. And so I was very fortunate to work with Burton from a very early age, and that just got so deep into my piano playing. You know, it's not just how you play the piano, it's how you, how you move through life physically. And it's, it's nothing, you know, it's no great, you know, spiritual, magical, you know, there's no voodoo to it. It's just dealing with physics in a very simple way. Um, we used to, at my piano lesson, we used to stand up and sit down on the bench for hours. And it all had to do with uh, letting gravity do all the work for you. So it doesn't take any great strength to play the piano. It takes understanding how to harness gravity in the service of creating a great piano tone. And so these are not like things that like not all piano players are thinking about. You know, they're more deep into like figuring out their trip. And I was very fortunate to sort of get my technical stuff out of the way as a young kid. So when I got to NEC and I started working with people like Paul Blay and Jerry Allen and Joe Maneri, we didn't have to talk about technique. There was just, it was, you know, I remember Jerry Allen, like, trying to get me to do these technical exercises, and I just went, like, and she was like, oh, okay, sorry. You know, like, okay, I guess you don't need that. Um, you know, and it's just, uh, I was very fortunate to work out my technical approach to the piano at a really young age, and it just, it was so deep in me. Um, and it was one of the reasons that... Um, improvising was sort of the obvious direction that I went in. Um, it ties into talking about, you know, writing music on score paper or even reading music. Uh, my ear got so ahead of my reading at such an early age that, um, and my technical ability was way beyond my reading also, that I just sort of went straight to trying to... Um, forget the technical stuff and get really into the music. Sure. And, you know, that's sort of the improviser's ideal. And so at NEC, that was the focus was just, you know, the technique was already there. So let's get into, you know, what is this music and where is it going? So um, lately, yeah, there seems to be just, you know, people are into the acoustic piano and <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm all for giving people what they enjoy. You know, there's, there's no need to suffer too much in this world. That's great. Yeah.
finally, will you say something about the label that the uh, New Zion Tree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, New Zion uh, came out on Veal Records, which is my own label. I started in 2007 um, to facilitate some really special projects that I had that I had sort of been shopping around and never really found a home, specifically the first record that I put out, which is um, a duo of Bobby Previn and I, Swami Late Plates, Doom Jazz, the record's called, and um, it's an acoustic piano trio performed as a duo where I was playing bass guitar and piano basically at the same time Um, and the piano is very sparse and more textural um, and sort of uh, the bass is really at the front it's the bass and drums are at the forefront and the the piano is just kind of flavor over it and this was a record that I uh, we had made and it was very special to me and uh, nobody was willing to do it the way I wanted to see it done and uh, there wasn't really a place for it on the Radical Jewish Culture series obviously it's not Jewish music and didn't really fit on Sadiq and so I started this label to do it all the way so that record has uh, incredible art by Mark Spusta who's this unbelievable graphic artist from uh, Northern California Um, he also did the Veal logo for me and he's done some other great art for me over the years uh, and it was based on a story conceived of by Bobby Previtt's wife, Andrea Klein. And there's a whole 16-panel pull-out color poster with this huge cartoon of the story of Doom Jazz. And it features Bobby and I in it. You'll see in, when you nice. open up the CD. Yeah. And so one of the things I tried to do with Veal, and I, I tried to do with Veal, is uh, to take the CD further than just a plain old CD in a plastic jewel case. All my CDs are in uh, nice wallets. No plastic at all. Uh, The New Zion Trio is in 100% green forestry wallet, 100% green forestry practices, like sustainable forestry practices. Um, I tried to do value added with all of my releases. So everything has beautiful print art by amazing artists Doom Jazz with Spusta. Uh, we have two Beta Popes records. Uh, the art was done, one of them by Stephen O'Malley from Sun, and the other by Selden Hunt. And they collaborated on the material for those two CDs. So there's uh, elements from both of them in each packaging. Those are amazing packaging. And the art for this was done by Santi himself, right, for New Zion Trio. Uh, absolutely. All the art for the New Zion Trio was hand-inked. Uh, and all the text hand-inked by Brother Santi. It's amazing, detailed art. I mean, the guy spends hundreds and hundreds of hours uh, doing these pieces. And so everything on Veal is a beautiful piece of print art, as well as, you know, uh, high-end Sonics. You know, I tried to really hook them up. Everything's uh, mastered by either Scott Hull or Vin Sin from Electric Plant, both amazing mastering guys, and... Uh, engineered by myself mostly and just you know attention to detail is what we're about at veal you know our motto is committed to excellence in grass-fed meats and music and uh you know i've been fortunate to hang with one of the greatest sustainable and organic butchers around joshua joshua applestone it's a great friend of mine has a shop up in kingston called fleischer's um and sort of got involved in hanging with the butchers and the sustainable food movement. And uh, I started Veal in New York in 2007. And one of the reasons that I was sort of looking to move to the country, um, I just recently moved upstate to the Catskills, and uh, was we always felt like uh, very disconnected from our food here in New York. You're very spoiled. You can have whatever you want. It's a very irresponsible way to, to live. You can order, you know, fancy sushi flown from FedEx overnight, you know, from the Pacific and then cut up by a high-end sushi chef and deliver it to your door in 30 minutes here in New York City at any time of the night. And it's a ridiculous, unsustainable, selfish model. And, uh, you know, part of our move to the country was to try and get back to a, a much more sustainable way of being. 
um, and, you know, lessening our, our footprint or our imprint. You're, in fact, being interviewed by a vegan who hasn't had a car in years and bikes everywhere. Well, so. there you go. There you Perfect. Go. <laughs> you obviously know what I'm talking about. And, you know, here in Brooklyn, um, you know, you, you can really live as if you're like a great patrician. You know, like anything can be yours in New York City at any time. Whatever your vice is can be yours. And it's really, it's just the most selfish and ridiculous way to live. So um, when I conceived of Veal, I sort of felt like uh, the name Veal Records um, would make people think about, you know, uh, how can something as difficult a concept as Veal be handled ethically, sustainably, morally, not selfishly and in fact it can if you uh you know do it in the right way and so i've been very fortunate to be hanging with josh applestone who's uh an unbelievable uh butcher and you know he's really spearheading a movement of local organic hundred all the beef is 100 percent grass-fed um, everything's organic, no antibiotics, and it's really um, an incredibly sustainable way to eat, to get closer to your food, uh, to know who grows your food, who kills the animals that you eat, and that it's done ethically and sustainably and in a beautiful way. And, um, you know, we have amazing organic farms everywhere. I have a huge garden at my house. We have chickens in the backyard. We raise our own eggs. Um, and, you know, I think Veal, the idea of Veal Records was to, you know, handle difficult music ethically, responsibly, and, uh, you know, reasonably. That's great. My guest is Jamie Saft. Uh, the New Zion Trio is absolutely worth your time, uh, as is his other music. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank for you. Here. Thanks a lot for having me. music from Jamie Saft and his new Zion trio. Get that record. It is really, really, really good. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thank you so much for listening, and now get out there if you would, and support live jazz. <laughs> I can't remember what it was you're supposed to do. Oh my god, I gotta start doing these earlier in the day. Get out there and just do something. I don't know, go be nice to people, would you? And uh, come back next time for another slightly more coherent introduction and outro-duction and conversation about jazz, for the love of God, on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.